You can't delegate digital transformation for your company. You and your executives have to own it. Executives need to engage, embrace, and adopt new ways of working with the latest in emerging technologies. And that's where we come in. Welcome to Embracing Change. The business world is changing at a faster pace than it ever has, and companies need to keep up. We interview the most interesting CEOs, CMOs, and other executives to talk about their challenges with digital transformation in their industry. This is Embracing Change, and this is your host, Gerardo Carrick. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Embracing Change, a digital transformation podcast where we talk to business leaders and executives about how changes in technology and in consumer behavior are affecting their industries and companies. I'm your host, Gerardo Kerik, Chief Digital Strategist at WSI Digital Boost. This show is brought to you by WSI, the largest network of independent digital agencies helping clients worldwide improve the return on investment of their digital assets. So today we're talking about the challenges of digital transformation for the retail industry, but we're adding a twist to the topic, the multicultural aspect. My guest today is Ariela Nerubai, Chief Marketing Officer at Curaçao. Ariela has more than 15 years of experience in executive marketing leadership, launching, repositioning, and growing brands and businesses from zero to multi-million dollar operations. A multicultural marketing expert, Nerubai currently serves as a CMO at Curaçao, a top, top 100 retailer in addition to being a John MBA faculty at the University of Southern California Marshall School of Business. Prior to Curaçao, she led multicultural marketing strategy for the Walt Disney Studios, Hispanic marketing operations for Sony Pictures International, releasing and building the marketing department for a startup media be venture between Spanish language media giants, Televisa and Univision, amongst many other things. She's basically a superstar in this <laughs> industry. <laughs> Welcome, Mariela. How are you? Hi, very nice to see you, Gerardo. Thank you so much for inviting me to your show. Oh, I thank you so much for, for, for taking the time to talk to us today and to our audience, okay? So, Ariela, before launching into the topic of retail and multicultural, tell us a little bit about your story and background. I mean, I, I, I think our audience will find it very, very interesting a little bit uh, to understand a little bit about where you come from and how you got to where you are today oh my goodness uh i'm gonna try to give you the short story otherwise that's gonna take over my entire hour it could, it could take the whole podcast right? right it could take a whole podcast how did ariela get here uh so i i have to say i've been very lucky um i think i do believe that in in any career uh journey people have um to have the skill set but also the right timing um, and, and a lot of those decisions that, you know, that you kind of second guess yourself, should I do this? Should I not do it? And, and I do have to say that throughout my entire career, I have been one that just goes for it. And I think that that has been my lucky start that I am, I, you know, I just go for it. I, I came to this country not knowing anybody and, and I wanted to study in America. So I just went for it. <laughs> mm -hmm. I went to UCLA. I got a, a, a you know a certificate program in a couple of different disciplines, and um, and then I started working. And I, I I obviously leaned into what I knew how to do, which is uh, Spanish language, because I am from Mexico, mm -hmm. and I figured you know what if there is a niche for me where I can truly thrive, would be serving my own community in America. 
So I began my journey working for Televisa on the new side, then moved on to PR, then moved on to the agency advertising agency world, all throughout really working for companies or agencies that specifically serviced the Latino community in the US, um, and then build an entire career that way, really focusing mm -hmm. on one particular niche of the, you know, of the population but one that is growing and, and has been growing uh, for decades and, and, and today is the largest multicultural segment in, in America. So mm -hmm. um, I, have, I was, I guess again, I, I was thoughtful by selecting the right niche and really going for it. But at the same time, I was very, very lucky to work for wonderful organizations uh, have amazing boss mentors that provided me the opportunity to really I expand my knowledge um, across multiple disciplines that enriched my my toolkit. Uh, mm -hmm. I believe that every every person that starts their journey should focus on enriching their toolkit and and have as many skills within their industry or their vertical as they can collect because all of those are the ones that come handy when you're resolving problems. Because life is about, as an executive and as a, as, as an, as a professional, it's always about what, what problem are you solving today? So mm -hmm. if, if I'm solving a problem that has to do with reputation or online reputation management, then I need to pull my PR you know, toolkit. And if mm -hmm. I am solving you know, a conversion issue, um, that we're having because of the cookie removals, you know, today, then I need to pull my digital marketing, you know, toolkit. And mm -hmm. if I am talking to the CEO and we are discussing the future of the company and the future state of, you know, of, of our business in general, then I need to pull my business toolkit. So I believe that there is toolkits for everything and, and you collect them as you mm -hmm. are exposed to a variety of projects, brands, um, situations, good and bad, because sometimes there is successes and sometimes there's failures and, and you learn. And there's from learnings both. from the from the failures too. It's Absolutely. important to collect those those and tools that, as well. And that's part of that those toolkits because when you find yourself on a on a situation of failure uh, or in a situation of you know of a mess, um, how you handle it really sets you up for success for how you will handle the next one. And mm -hmm. even if you handled it poorly, maybe this time, then that's the toolkit. Now you know, oof, if I have to sit back and think about how I handled it before that was not appropriate, how would I handle it in the future? Because another problem will show up and another situation where you fail will show up. So mm -hmm. take that toolkit and say, okay, I remember I handled it this way and it worked, or I, w I decided I was going to handle it differently this time, and you do, and then you realize, well, now I did it right. <laughs> so I love it. I love it. Well, that's very insightful, and uh, it's, it's, it's so true in general. I mean, it's almost, I know we're talking about digital transformation in this, in the, in, in this episode and, and, and in our podcast, but uh, it's a topic that fascinates me, which is... Um, professional growth and I think I would almost like to have a separate conversation with you about all of this I have so many points of view on Absolutely. this and uh, I, I think we could <laughs> we could share a lot of <laughs> insights on that now you talked about the fact that you're um, 
a multicultural executive with a multicultural background, right? So, so right. you're from Mexico, you came to the United States, you know, for the American dream, but you're a second generation uh, immigrant, right? I mean, y you come from a background of immigrants as well, right? Yes, I am a, I guess, double whammy immigrant, right? Because mm -hmm. my grandparents were, uh, well, my great grandparents immigrated to Mexico, bringing mm -hmm. my grandparents who then you know, gave birth to my parents as the first generation Mexicans. Um, we were originally from Ukraine, Poland, uh, Belarus area. Mm -hmm. um, so all of, you know, all of my family that migrated here and then m when my parents were born, then obviously they had me. So I'm second generation Mexican in Mexico, mm -hmm. but then moved to America and became now first generation Mexican-American in a way. So yeah. it is, yeah, it is. It, it's a, it's I am definitely a combination of cultures. And um, even though I am physically, when you see me, very Eastern European, I am 100% Latina, mm -hmm. very proudly. Um, mm -hmm. I, I relate to to my community in, in, in every possible way. Mm -hmm. um, and, then, and then at the same time, because I've been here for now over 25 years, um, or soon, actually, this summer, it'll be 25 years, um, then I, I, I feel like I'm part of that 200 generation, right? Like I'm 100% Ameri American, 100% yeah. Mexican, and, 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 and just all of these different cultures kind of like converge. Together, into, yeah. Into Fully bicultural. And we talked about this in our prep call. I mean, we share that as well. Uh, my audience probably don't know uh, that I have a very similar background to yours in the sense that right. my grandparents immigrated from the same area, Ukraine, Poland, Germany, fleeing Second World War to right. Argentina. Then they fled Argentina in the 70s. I was born in Argentina. They fled Argentina in the 70s because of the military government to Mexico. I was raised in Mexico and I feel fully, uh, fully Mexican. And then I moved like you from Mexico to, to, to the United States for, um, uh, you, know, for, you know, for work and better, and better options, right? And, and, and right. I'm like, you feel that part of that 200 percenters, right? right. Uh, fully, bi fully bicultural. And so I, I, I think that that's really interesting because um, especially for the topic of multicultural marketing that we, we're gonna touch upon today, it's important to understand that culture is not only language, uh, multicultural marketing is not, not only about language, but it's also about culture, values, and, and many different aspects that really make you connect with, the, with your audience, right? Absolutely. So, as you know, we want to focus on digital transformation and disruption. Um, and just to define it for our audience, uh, I'd like to, 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 to throw there what, what, we, what we mean when we talk about digital transformation, okay? So we see digital transformation as a process of using digital technologies to create new or modify existing business processes, culture, and customer experiences to meet changing business and market requirements, mm -hmm. right? So it transcends roles like sales and marketing and customers. So it, it's more than that. It touches it's everything. basically business being tra transformed, right? Yep. So I want to open up the topic and hear about your experience and what you're seeing within the retail industry in particular, which is your most recent experience in terms of digital transformation. Wh what can you tell us about that? What can I not tell you, Gerardo? <laughs> <laughs> Well, let me start by sharing that I work for a company that has been around for 40 years. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, again, four decades of serving customers that are uh, 
first-generation Latinos. And over the past four years since I joined the organization, I actually have been uh, spearheading our digital transformation, at least on the marketing front. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is that for 40 years, 90% of their customers were first-generation Latinos, just like you and I when we were born in our countries of origin and moved here. Mm -hmm. So n nine out of 10 customers of Curacao, which is a retail company that lends to first-generation, second-generation today, Latinos, um, and where people start their credit journey, buy their refrigerator, the, the, the telephone, or the whatever it is that they, that they need uh, that is a hard good because we don't sell any soft goods. Um, they come to Curacao, they open credit, and then they start their journey. And we used to go out and target them equally in a very analog, I guess, kind of world. Um, our um, catalog, our printed catalog was kind of like the Sears catalog approach mm -hmm. through literally through today still is one of the most important elements of our acquisition and um, activation uh, strategies because mm -hmm. it works. Mm -hmm. When I joined the organization, I was like, gosh, you're still doing catalogs. What is that about? I'm like, I want to take all those away. We spend millions of dollars a year just in printing and mailing, mm -hmm. not to mention the literally very treacherous 10-week production process because mm -hmm. it was so broken internally between all of the parties that contribute to this catalog. You have a product management team that sets the type of products that go in the catalog at what price and with what descriptions and what attributes and sometimes even what promotions um, related to those products. But then you have the marketer, right, which, which says, okay, so this is this is a campaign. This is who we're going after. This is the these are the messages that we're going to deliver. This is the segmentation strategy that I am approaching. Therefore, your products need to meet my strategy. But yet, the internal processes were so broken that mark, marketing would say, this is what we're going to do. And then product managers would say, well, this is what we did, and it didn't match up. So sometimes we would send a marketing catalog, first of all, massively to people that would come anyway because their propensity to buy or to come to the store is so high that there is not even reason when you compare it to the control group. Uh, mm -hmm. Meaning we send a million catalogs and then we choose a control group that looks like the million people we just sent a catalog to and we take them out and see their behavior and we see that this control group of people, they still came to the store even though they didn't receive the catalog. So why would you send that segment of the population, the catalog, they have a high propensity to come anyway. So it's mm -hmm. marketing spend that you shouldn't be allocating. So, um, so again, going back, and I'm, I'm going to focus a lot on the catalog because that, it, that was and is still such a vital channel for us. Um, but we have been very thoughtful about, you know, about using technology, I guess, in order to be able to assess, um, you know, different propensities. Again, are they, what's their propensity to come and buy? What's their propensity to actually churn within the next 12 months, or is there mm -hmm. propensity to churn within the next 24 months? 
and and we do all this analysis with our own algorithms um, in our data science team that then help me assign a scorecard, like a scorecard to each one of these segments and then eliminate the segments that don't work, like that I don't need to spend money on and then mm -hmm. determine what the intensity of the promotion that I need to do in order to be able to attract the ones that I do want them to come because they mm -hmm. have the highest propensity to churn. So that's the catalog and that's the, the way that we utilize technology there. But the reality is, is that as I was saying earlier, I came to Curaçao and I said, why are you guys still using catalog? And when I saw all the information and all the data, and then we started you know, evolving even farther into our processes of aligning with product management, with our strategies, and aligning data science with, uh, with all of this information that we need to do in order to understand where to put the money. I did a major digital transformation shift in terms of budget, first budget allocation. 90% of our dollars four years ago went to traditional media, TV, mm -hmm. radio, catalog. 10% mm -hmm. to digital. Mm -hmm. Today, four years later, 50-50. Okay, so I have a question, a follow-up question there. How much of that is a result of um, the last two years? The fact that uh, we went through a period of a pandemic and that probably many of your... Um, of the people that used to come to your stores, uh, maybe maybe were afraid of coming to a store, and, and but they still needed to buy goods, right? How how much? I'm trying to assess how much. Uh, we we knew we were gonna get there, but how much was accelerated by by the pandemic? This shift. So you made a great point. So it was definitely by design that I was gonna push the company to move into a more. Um, you know, 50-50 digital versus traditional approach by the mere fact that strategically, in order for us to scale up, we needed to be more digitally focused. Because And, 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 and let, me, let me just clarify there. When you say digital focused, is digitally focused in the sense of e-commerce sales? Correct. Or communication? Um, uh, both, because it's e-commerce sales, the future of retail now with Amazon and all of the competitors mm -hmm. we have, we just didn't have a choice. We had yeah. to go and, and, and transform ourselves. So, so talking about digital transformation, so for mm -hmm. our company, part of it was by design and, the, and part of it definitely COVID accelerated all of us in, in the mm -hmm. retail industry, the need for, um, for servicing our customers where they want and where they are. So mm -hmm. what it was interesting is that Curaçao, because it was traditionally a brick and mortar store, um, where 90% of our sales come through, still do, by the way, 90% mm -hmm. of our sales still come through our brick and mortar stores. Mm -hmm. um, during the pandemic and the shutdown, we were lucky that because we sell computers, we were able to stay op open as an essential business. But we did see a major shift in consumer behavior and how a large portion of our customers actually chose not to come to the store and shop online. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, we, were, we were ready because we had been working on our e-com platform for four years at that point. 
Mm -hmm. um, so we were ready for the pandemic, thankfully, and we were able to capitalize on all that influx of customers that move from in-store to online. Uh, but in order to, to be able to, you know, to accommodate that, um, we also had to shift our marketing strategies. So there was a lot of spent that was shifted from outdoor advertising, which was a big issue for us because we had contracts with outdoor companies, but all of a sudden nobody's driving. So it's like, what is the point on putting our dollars on outdoor when the world when is... people are not in the streets. Yeah. There's nobody mm -hmm. on the streets. So we, we were able to get out of those contracts, like honestly, through a lot of uh, negotiation, and mm -hmm. then shifted all of that spend into digital marketing. Now, okay. as I was mentioning before, it is also by design that we are shifting our marketing focus and our business model into digital marketing because we know that it's not scalable to stay only within the four walls of our stores and attract customers and expect that they will drive 20 miles, 30 miles, or even 50 miles to come to the store to open an account. Mm -hmm. So in 2018, um, which is the year that I joined the organization, I work with a digital team to launch, to build and launch our first um, uh, online application. We mm -hmm. used to collect applications for credit from our customers by you know being outside of supermarkets with our pen and paper and filling out literally paper applications mm -hmm. uh, or through the stores we have a whole credit center within the store where you can walk in the store and be directed to the credit desk and open an account kind of like in a bank mm -hmm. um, so the and we and then we have a pre-approve uh, uh, channel which is we pre-approve certain customers that qualify for a credit and mail them an offer to apply. Mm -hmm. But then there was this fourth channel that I spearheaded the development for, which is our online credit application. So it's all digital based. You scan a QR code. It sends you to the landing page where you can literally apply online, which mm -hmm. even though it may sound like of course, why wouldn't you be able to? Well, for Curaçao, it was new. <laughs> it literally mm -hmm. just happened in the last four years. Yeah. So we went from, you know, having zero customers that applied online to having an entire organization, marketing organization, that is funding digital advertising efforts to attract customers to apply online and then shop either in the store or on our e-com platform. And we yeah. went from zero to now being, you know, the second most important channel that we have wow. in terms of sourcing new accounts. And not only cool. is the mo one of the most important ones and the one that has the most growth potential, but also the most challenging one. Because with the removal of all cookies, our segmentation approaches have been impacted. So our conversion mm -hmm. rates are, are a lot lower and our costs are a lot higher mm -hmm. we're struggling enormously and i mean there's things that we're doing um and we will talk more about that but mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. but but really this cookie removal it has brought this one channel that was our second largest sources of you know of business for us from the second one to now the fourth one mm -hmm. just because of the cookie removal of course I know it's challenge. a it, it's it's affecting it's affecting all all of our clients. We see it uh, every day, especially with e-commerce um, businesses. 
it basically loopsided all of their numbers and we're all right. uh, trying to relearn how to live within this new world where uh, there's uh, higher privacy laws and uh, and less information available right so uh, you touched upon something very interesting which is uh, you know this this concept of of the retail apocalypse, right? That started in 2017 right. with, you know, Abercrombie and Finch and Blockbusters and Guess and Toys R Us and all of these companies, retail companies really struggling, right? And it seems right. to me that from what you're describing that, you know, within the organization that, that you work for Curacao, uh, action was taken to really make that shift and do not be so dependent on the retail operation but have uh, uh, an e-commerce an e-commerce side that it, that is actually fueling, fueling all of all, all of this growth right so i'm interested in understanding when we talk about some of the competencies that you have to build within an organization right to be able to make this this transformation you know, we can talk about analytics, we can talk about sales and marketing, we can talk about operations, right? Uh, and uh, so I'm interested in understanding how does an organization acquire those skills, right? We're talking about machine learning, uh, retail analytics, we're talking about process mining, right? Absolutely. When it comes to sales and marketing, you talked about omnichannel, conversational artificial intelligence. There's so many different aspects that really make or break this transformation right so i'm interested in understanding what is the process of first of all identifying those gaps that an organization has that need to be filled in what competencies need to be acquired and then in what order right right what should we acquire first you know we can we cannot achieve everything at the same time exactly. right and then how do we allocate resources behind that i'd love to hear your insight into that uh, I know it's a very loaded question. It is a very it loaded is. question. It is loaded, but it's, uh, it's on point because when I joined Curacao and um, I took three months to really learn the operation because I came from entertainment, as you mentioned, from mm -hmm. Disney and the other studios and 12 years working for Univision. Mm -hmm. So I was not familiar with the retail operation. I mean, I'm definitely a shopper, but it's very different from when you're behind, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the other side. So I joined the organization, I learned about retail. I mean, three months is not nearly enough. I have to say that I'm on my fourth year and I'm finally getting it. <laughs> so it takes a lot of time to really build the competency. In fact, I mean, I love the book from The Tipping Point and there mm -hmm. was, um, I just love Malcolm Gladwell, but he has a book that specifically talks about how you know you really need 10,000 hours to become a, a true expert at something mm -hmm. and that's about 10 years so I'm on my fourth year I feel that I'm <laughs> getting there but I still have six more to go before I can say that I really understand retail but what I can tell you is that as soon as I joined the company and I started seeing how they operated the first thing I said is we are spraying and praying still you know, you guys, the way that you operate your marketing is spray and pray. We need to serve the right customer, the right offer, on the right language, at the right time when they're ready to make a purchase. Mm -hmm. And then our conversion rate and our average order value, all of that is going to increase and everything will make sense. We'll reduce costs, we'll be more operationally efficient, um, instead of having all this waste, again, with the massive catalogs and the mass television and 
I really want it to be very digital and very focused. And the only way you can achieve that specificity is, again, understanding who your customer is. That mm -hmm. was four years ago. And I spoke about this and constantly that that was my goal, but I didn't really know candidly how to get there. Because mm -hmm. again, Curacao is a big company and just like Curacao is a big, just like other big companies, there's a lot of silos. And I didn't even know where to start finding the information I needed to really understand who the customer was. Mm -hmm. We have a gigantic data lake because nine out of our of 10 customers that shop at Curacao they use our private level credit card. Mm -hmm. That means I know who they are, where they live, uh, how much money they make, what's their household income, what's their age range or age group, whether they're male or female, even sometimes to the degree of what country of origin, whether they mm -hmm. came from Mexico, El Salvador, Guatemala, or from where, because that mm -hmm. was part of the application process. I know um, I know how the, what they bought, you know, and how often they buy and how good of payers they are because that's very mm -hmm. important for our company in terms of risk. Um, but I didn't know a lot of other things that really enriched my view about the, well, who this human being was, right? Because mm -hmm. me knowing all your demographics is great in order for me to identify or geofence you with messages. But to really trigger you as a marketer, I really need to understand a lot deeper who you are and what motivates you. Mm -hmm. And that's the data enrichment that I was missing. And I did not know how to go about it because my budgets are limited. Data enrichment is expensive. Um, and I didn't even know where to, what, do you go Google data enrichers? <laughs> you know, how do I know <laughs> where do you start? Are? Yeah. Where do you start? Mm -hmm. So so I ended up going to Etel this year. So it took me four years. I mean, I knew where I needed to go. I knew that I kept saying I need budget. I need to find it, but I didn't know how. So mm -hmm. I would have to say that these conferences really are very helpful. So Etel, which is the largest retail um, e-com uh, conference in America, mm -hmm. as far as I understand from my peers, um, I was there. And oh my God, all of a sudden the world opened up. All of these vendors that provide all of these digital platforms that would help do my job a lot more efficiently. And I came across a company that is a data enrichment company, brought them on, we started talking, and right now we're in process of, of onboarding them so that we can do our first tests into mm -hmm. taking these data lake that we have uh, to a completely new level. Really, really contextualizing the customer understanding across like i think they have 400 data points that can really provide context to the other side of who this person is mm -hmm. because again if if you're me if i'm a curacao customer all you know of me is that i bought a phone two months ago and that i make this much money and i live in this place and i'm a woman and i have this age mm -hmm. but all of the other things that you don't know about me is that I have children, that I could, that you could be marketing toys to me, or that I have an interest in pets, that you could be marketing to me about pets, or mm -hmm. that I have, you know, right now, eight Ukrainians living in my house. So you, so obviously I have a need for extra, you know, uh, household items that I'm gonna mm -hmm. be sharing with them. So there's, and, and how would you know that with data enrichment is because 
data enrichment reaches out to other first party data pro, uh, you know owners like myself mm -hmm. that then join potentially on a co-op or through other companies that you know have transactional data that through this transactional data you can see oh wait a minute there is this whole other side to this person because they don't only transact in curacao they transact in you know thousands of retailers of and businesses outside that mm -hmm. then all collectively that data kind of signals to you what is the, what is everything else that i do outside of curacao that of could course. add context because then i you can in the past say oh well she bought a every time she comes to curacao she only buys furniture so she's a furniture buyer so mm -hmm. every time i send you an email i'm going to send you an email related to furniture because i'm making mm -hmm. a gross assumption that that's all you care about is furniture mm -hmm. i just came to buy furniture but i care about a lot of other things of course that you could potentially offer me but because you're you're boxing me into a into into this uh, furniture buyer, then you're gonna miss out and you're gonna lose. Yeah, and, and not only offer you, but also uh, with all of this uh, richness of information, I could actually create messaging that it's actually more relevant to you. Exactly. Right? exactly. And it's gonna make you be more interested in my brand, in my products, right? So if you're a, a pet lover, and maybe in my in in my messaging, I have pictures of a family. Maybe I want to have a catalog for you know not a catalog but an ad for pet lovers with a family with animals, right? Right. Because because I know that's how you see your family, and I can only that know that through that data enrichment, and that's going to actually make uh, that particular ad probably a tad more relevant to you. Right? Absolutely. So so it would increase my click through rate. And potentially the conversion rate, for sure. And potentially the conversion rate, exactly. So uh, th there is there is a famous story, probably you've heard about it, um, about uh, with Target, right? Uh, and and there was this uh, this uh, this person that came to a Target. Uh, he was uh, he was a dad, and he was uh, very upset, and he wanted to to talk to the manager of of uh, that that particular store that was in his local store, right? And he was very offended because Target started sending his household information, catalogs about pregnancy, right? Pre pregnancy clothing and pregnant and creeps and, you know, all of these coupons for a, a baby products and stuff like that. And, and, and he had teenage, uh, teenage daughters and he was very offended mm. by that. And, what happened was that he did not know that one of his uh, teenage daughters was actually pregnant and that she's been researching information about pregnancy and how to deal with pregnancy and how to be healthy and all of this. And she was afraid of, of, of telling that. And, and the, the, the data analytics machine that Target had through all of this data enrichment had seen all of this and assumed this was a, 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 a woman that was pregnant that was doing all of this research and they triggered all of this flood of information to try to target her Correct. to buy products at, at Target, right? So it's a very famous uh, study. It's a very famous case study that it's actually taught at some schools in the sense of how actually Target knew before the dad <laughs> Exactly. That the, that the daughter was pregnant. Because of her daughter's uh, behavior Behaviors. online. 
behavior online. Correct, exactly. search because behavior, behavior because online. and that's part of the whole data privacy issues, right? That because I can I can make a lot of assumptions about you based on your o online behavior and and, mm -hmm. and search patterns. So which could be absolutely right or absolutely wrong because mm -hmm. if you have a single person that is online searching for wipes, baby wipes to mm -hmm. clean their desk because it's pandemic, right? So mm -hmm. they're like baby wipes and then they go and search and then they go and buy baby wipes and then they mm -hmm. buy a lot of baby wipes. Then that, but this is a single guy who has no kids and no interest on in babies. It just happens mm -hmm. to buy baby wipes. That's why marketers cannot use a single search keyword to make assumptions about search patterns. I mean, mm -hmm. it's it's layered, it's complex, uh, you know, it's multi, you know, multi attribute analysis that you need to mm -hmm. do in order to truly understand. Now, in the case of Target, they were spot on. The lady was pregnant and she was doing research on pregnancy. And, you know, what's interesting is that, you know, the dad didn't know, but mm -hmm. but Target knew because you are leaving your cookie crumbs everywhere, everywhere, yeah. everywhere with everything that you do. Um, in fact, talking again about more the digital transformation. So I would say the first thing that keeps me up at night was how am I going to sell the right message to the right person at the right time on the right vehicle and, you know, with the right offer? Well, mm -hmm. a lot of that is going to come with data enrichment. Secondly is how can I, can I really bring my, 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 even my offline, both online and offline operations a step further to really understand consumer um, you know, consumer behavior as it comes to driving patterns to and from my store. Because mm -hmm. we have these little articles called phones that mm -hmm. are running apps in the background at all times because we allow them to. Unless mm -hmm. you sit down and go in your settings and turn all of your apps off and say only run, in the, you know, whenever I tell you to, then mm -hmm. it is likely that a big portion of your apps that you have in your phone are currently running on the background. Mm -hmm. So we, we contracted a software company um, that provides us with maps that aggregate data from, um, I don't know, thousands of apps that are out there collecting our background information, location information. And then all of these thousands of, um, of apps send all that information to this one company and then this one company then creates maps that gives marketers real-time access to see where people are coming and going mm -hmm. from location to location. So it's telling me that, for example, people that come to Curaçao drive these particular streets in higher volumes than these particular streets. Mm -hmm. So I should be buying east-west on Olympic versus north-south mm -hmm. because a, a larger portion of my customers, because I may have a lot of traffic on, you know, on, on Olympic, which is going, no, on, uh, on Union, which is going north-south. Maybe that's mm -hmm. a more highly traffic street, but mm -hmm. the people that come to my store don't use that avenue. They come yeah. from Olympic, which is a lower traffic street so for me, now it, it elevates a conversation with billboard companies. And now I said, well, maybe your billboard gives more impressions, 
but they give impressions to the wrong people. Because mm -hmm. my people, <laughs> the people that come to my company, I based on their data or on their phones and where they come from, they actually run on these streets that are mm -hmm. lower cost for me, but higher impact because mm -hmm. that's where they drive to and from. Wow. So we now I am using technology, that type of digital technology to reposition my billboard ads or geofence, you know, certain neighborhoods that mm -hmm. show in a heat map to be the neighborhoods where the majority of my customers or potential customers, um, you know, live. So then yeah. I am utilizing technology in all fronts, you know, of course. And, and again, it's, it's digital technology that impacts online and offline. Yeah, and, and what our audience don't know, probably don't know, I'm assuming, no, many, many might not know, is that you can, you can actually pinpoint very, very specifically that geo-targeting, right, and geo-fencing. Yes. And you could actually say, somebody, I want to show these ads to people, not only that go on the streets, I mean, not, I'm not talking about billboards, but on, digi on digital, I want to show, show these ads to people that enter these stores, because oh. I know there's a shopping center where yeah. I'm not, right? So I could actually be, you know, that specific and 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 target it that way, and uh, and 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 really try to lure those people towards a different store, right? Actually, so that's... I'm gonna make it even scarier. I literally there's maps of Best Buy out there mm -hmm. that I can literally geofence the Best Buy that is across the street from me, and I can geofence the electronics department mm -hmm. so that when potential customers interact with any app. I can serve them up an ad that Curacao says, for electronics, here is a coupon, come to my store. Yeah. Isn't that, that crazy? I mean, it's, it, it's crazy. I mean, it's incredible what we can do right now in terms of targeting right. and all the tools that we have. And uh, I just find it, it's, I mean, for somebody that it's been in marketing like you for so many years, it's so much fun. I mean, it was such a harder job before, wasn't it? I know. I, well, I'll tell you, it was... I would say it was so much easier before because you weren't held accountable as much. Whereas true, today, true. There is yeah, a I huge see... accountability that comes with visibility because yeah. like before you spend money on television and well, how do you know that your television worked? I don't know. Who I knows? Mean, yeah. But now I can, I can definitely tell you, Hey, I sent, I sent this email and it, and, it had an average or high open rate, but yet the clicking didn't happen. But it's not because of the creative. It's because your offers don't motivate my customer. Yeah. So then mm -hmm. now you have accountability and I can say, look, marketing is generating the open rate. Marketing is driving people to the store, but the conversion rate is low because your product mix or because your pricing or because of your customer service. Yeah. So I there is a lot of elements within the store that really work together to provide the right experience to a customer that are way beyond marketing. Yeah. But marketing is the easiest target always is to say, well, bring more customers, bring the right customers. And you couldn't say before, bring the right customers, but like, how do I find them? But yeah. now with digital marketing, you can be very specific about the type of customers that you're serving your ad and that you're bringing into your store. Of so course. there's a high level of accountability um, that makes it more fun uh, but more challenging at the same more time. More challenging too. Yeah, I mean, we, we serve a lot of media companies and uh, a lot of them are with subscription on demand services. 
And we see it with marketing, right? I mean, we can drive the audiences to take a free trial and, 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 and download the app. But if your shows are not good shows or if your catalog is not a good catalog, you know, after the, the free trial finishes, they're going to they're they're, leave. They're and you, and you, can, you know if a good show is a good show because they started watching it, but they didn't finish it right. or they didn't move to a second episode. Exactly. I mean, now we have all of that information so we can have a real conversation about right. what's the problem. Right. 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 Um, so very, very interesting. Okay. So, so I have, I have to say technology is the greatest enabler but mm -hmm. there's still people behind that technology. So you still have to know how to utilize it and, 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 and apply it correctly in order to really tap into that enabling element. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, that's a very, very good insight. Thanks for sharing that because it's true. It's not about the technologies, about what we do with the technology exactly. and all of this data that we have, right? Exactly. The insights that we uh, take out of it and the actions that we take. Exactly. Um, so. Let's do a little bit of a shift and talk about multicultural marketing. And uh, I know we don't have that much more time. We want to try to keep these conversations under under the hour, right? But let's talk yeah. about marketing to Hispanics, right? Yes. Um, you're a multicultural expert, right? Yes. So this interview wouldn't be complete about talking to, talking about Hispanics. So, you know, I was looking at the 2020 census results, right? Um, and there's a few things that really caught my eye. First of all, that the growth of the U.S. population of, over the past decade has been predominantly driven by Latino growth, right? Um, the second one was that despite its growth, the Latino community in the U.S. has often struggled to establish strong credit ratings due to a number of factors, but many of them have to be with the, with the financial literacy, right? So not only language, but the, the trust for traditional banks, financial literacy, right? Yes. Then there was something about consumer behavior that came out of that census, right? And, and I know this sounds, this sounds like, it doesn't sound like a question, but there's a question behind it, right? So, so the first one was that there's, there's like three pillars uh, that are behind uh, the Hispanic behavior, right? Education. Families often sacrifice as much as possible to cover the children's advanced education. So leaving no extra money for other things, right? Uh, then you have family support. Families often support members voluntarily. So they're sending money abroad to support their members voluntarily, right? Um, and that shows in remittances, right? We see right. The, the, the volume of, of money sent. And then the third one is uh, about borrowing. There is a lack of experience with credit and building credit history, right? right? Uh, because there's, there's a lack of financial education. So understanding this, understanding that we have this, uh, this, uh, back, uh, this background to marketing to multicultural, particular Hispanics, I'm very interested in understanding what's behind the success that Curaçao has had in actually getting Hispanics to open up credit cards and to actually start building a credit history, you know, because you're basically going against the trend of what's been happening exactly. with the, you know, with the, with the Hispanic community. So, well, that, those are great questions. Again, um, you're full of great questions. <laughs> <laughs> I do have to say, thank I'm you. enjoying your conversation. So thank you. Thank you for that. 
Um, so, you know, Latinos in general, as you mentioned, we from first generation Latinos, we come from countries where, you know, financial education was limited. Uh, getting a credit card or a, or, or a checking account was only for a certain group in society that was able to, you know, to, to be more financially savvy and use it. It's a, it used to be a very cash-based uh, society. So, mm -hmm. so the relationship with banks and institution was always, you know, at, at odds. You know, people didn't feel comfortable with, with banking institutions, especially if they came to America. Um, I used to work uh, on the agency side for Washington Mutual at the time, which is a, used to be a bank here in California. I don't know if they had other uh, locations in different places, but Washington Mutual um, used to be like this bank that we did a lot of bilingual uh, assets for. And I remember being at the bank, just doing my own uh, customer observations. I like to be where my customer is to learn more about their consumer behavior firsthand. And I remember seeing, standing online and seeing this Latino first generation customer who literally would let people go through the line until the attendant or the cashier that, said, that had the little sign that says, hablo espanol, would mm -hmm. become available. Uh, because there is also the cultural, you know, differences. So you feel more comfortable doing business with somebody that is of your culture. There is a built-in trust by the fact that you and I come from the same place, mm -hmm. whether it could be the same country or at least that we speak the same language. Mm -hmm. That is already a point of connection. So banks didn't really staff up a lot of multicultural or had a lot of diversity, you know, in their you know, in, in, in the ranks, I mean, at, at least on the on their customer service fronts for a long time. Um, part of really servicing properly a multicultural consumer is that you have, you know, customer se uh, call centers that offer the language choice so that you can actually speak to a representative that understands you. Um, also, if you think, <coughs> excuse me, if Bless you think, you. <laughs> thank you, if you think about um, numbers, you count in the language that you were raised unless you have spent enough time in America that now like your brain like mine starts thinking in English even counting in English but for I would say the first decade I lived in America I was still dreaming in Spanish and counting in Spanish because mm -hmm. that's how I learned to count and counting is something that is very intimate to who you mm -hmm. are right like counting money especially finances yeah. so you because of all of these elements then you trust somebody that is speaks your language that understands you and that you know you culturally connect with curacao differently from Franks, was made by latinos and for latinos everybody at the store spoke spanish in fact 90 percent of the associates that worked at curacao were spanish language first mm -hmm. so people will come to a store where they felt at home uh, Curacao actually sourced a lot of their merchandise in Latin America. So mm -hmm. it was like a lot of the brands were familiar to them. Uh, mm -hmm. They offered, you know, a, a money transfer, which is the what we were talking about, sending money mm -hmm. back to their countries of origin. Uh, they, all the services and all of the products and, 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 and you walked into the store and you would see s symbols of Latin 
you know, elements everywhere. The music that we're playing in the background was in Spanish. So it was very familiar. And that really propelled them into success because yeah. they serviced a, an invisible audience um, to what other banks and other companies just didn't see. There mm -hmm. is a saying that I love that says, you know, um, being skilled at something is being able to hit a target that nobody can. Mm -hmm. But being brilliant at something is hitting a target that no one can see. And I mm -hmm. believe that Curacao was brilliant at it because they were hitting a target that nobody else was targeting and nobody else was seeing because these were, again, first generation Latinos, immigrants that had no visibility to the banking system. And, uh, and the only real source or choice for them was Curacao mm -hmm. in order to one, obtain I mean, feel comfortable in an environment that was conducive to business for them because I'm very comfortable in the store. Still today, 80% mm -hmm. of our customers say that they feel very comfortable and that's a store for them. Mm -hmm. And then second, um, from a financial standpoint, they came you know, really restricted with finances. So... Curacao offered them an opportunity to have a bed and have a living room and a dining room set and spend $4,000 and pay in small little payments yeah. over a period of time. So I think that the combination of having an environment that is culturally relevant, customer service representatives that spoke your language, and then services that were catered specifically to you all of that in combination is what set them on for success. The question yeah. is, where do you take them from here? Right? That's that's sure. my challenge. They yeah. were very successful, awesome, for 40 years. Now, from here on, how do we make this business relevant to the second generation who mm -hmm. doesn't have banking issues, that doesn't that speaks English because it, this is their country. They're bicultural. They're they're a hundred percent American, a hundred percent Hispanics. And they get targeted with financial offers from every other bank out there because they're mm -hmm. not invisible. They're in the system. So how do we remain relevant to them? What do we need to do to continue to attract them so that we can survive another forty years? Is the yeah. question. Fascinating challenge. I think I think that could be the topic for a second conversation at some that point. That would be great. Yeah. That would be great because I think I think it would take us another hour to go through that, and we wouldn't have a solution for that. Exactly. I'm, I'm, I'm sure you have plans. <laughs> I'm working Listen, on it every day. I I, I, I can imagine. I can imagine. I, so, something that you mentioned about the the, the what's behind targeting this audience um, is not only about the importance of being in culture. Not only in language, right? At many stores, they think, okay, we're going to put a, 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 our ads in Spanish. But it's not right. only about the language. It's about the culture, right? right? Being relevant to the culture. But also what I find very, very interesting about the challenge that you described that took them to where they are right now is the fact that the, not only they are offering credit to someone that no one else is giving credit to, right? I mean, there's a risk in that. But in, but in reality, it's the opposite, because this audience is so thankful it is. to the you know to the to the organization that is giving them that credit, right? Exactly. That they become super loyal. 
Absolutely. Because, because they know that this organization, this business stood behind them. Right. Right. Help them when nobody else would. Exactly. Right. And then they become super loyal. And it's a very interesting, you know, it's a very interesting phenomenon because I don't think it happens much with many businesses. Right. right? Because it, businesses tend to be very transactional versus relationship driven. Whereas mm -hmm. in Curaçao, the, actually even their slogan was welcome to the family. Right. Mm -hmm. You're part of now, a, 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 you know, a company that's going to be supporting you. And the support not only came in the matter of offering financial, offering them financial freedom, uh, but also politically. You know, mm -hmm. Curaçao supports Latino causes, immigration, health, education, all mm -hmm. of those verticals that you mentioned earlier in the in our call. All of those are supported through the um, Curaçao Foundation, mm -hmm. who is, uh, which is an organization within Curaçao that is dedicated to deliver a percentage of all the sales that are made in Curaçao go directly to the foundation for uh, funding of programs that are relevant for these particular communities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So so there is a lot of, there's, as I said, there, we need a whole other uh, hour a, a to whole talk other, about a, a, the things that Curaçao has done for the community, but that's a very important angle too. It's not only I advertise to you in Spanish, and but also what are you doing for my community and then what is my experience when i come to the store uh, do mm -hmm. you really have like spanish language assets throughout that allow me to feel comfortable um do you have spanish language representatives do you staff people that look like me so i can feel comfortable mm -hmm. with you um so all of those elements really come to play into a full 360 you know experience mm -hmm. that communicates i am committed to you Mm -hmm. And therefore, the customers in return, you know, reward you with their business and their referrals. Curaçao yeah. has grown over the past 40 years, not only through the customers that brings through marketing, but one of the largest sources of growth um, has been referrals. Wow. So, wow. and that speaks volumes because if somebody course, actually refers course, it's, a it's, business... It's, then they're putting their reputation. It's the biggest, it's the biggest, it's the biggest uh, compliment. Yeah. It's the biggest exactly. compliment that any business can have. Exactly. Listen, Ariela, thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun, super interesting, super full of, of uh, great insights. I think uh, uh, the audience uh, are going are gonna to leave this, this podcast with so many, so many thoughts in their minds and about things they, could, they, they should be thinking about. So thank you so much. Thank uh, you for I really appreciate me. your time, okay? Really appreciate it. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. -bye. Bye.